O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated again. I encourage you, please do keep your Bibles open today. We love God's Word around here. In fact, if you should get, if you're gonna, if you're more likely to get sick of anything here, it's just how much we're in the Bible. <laughs> we love God's Word. That's what you need. That's what we need. Christians, they find that God's Word is, again, a, a, not just a source of comfort when things are falling apart, but it becomes like bread for us. It becomes, it becomes like a daily meal for us. Um, and so I encourage you, keep the, your Bibles open. We're going to be in uh, Psalm 15 this entire morning. Um, we're in the book of Psalms, and uh, this book um, is one that may or may not be familiar to you. Uh, I still talk with many who um, are not Christians, who still would if they grew up around the church, they remember the book of Psalms, or you're going to hear the book of Psalms quoted still in uh, dominant culture. Psalms has been a, uh, the, it's not just the poetry that stands out to us, it's, it's that something about the book of Psalms gives language to us about how to talk to God. After all, it is a book of prayers. And the book of Psalms is, um, it gives us a, a small taste of what it sounds like on your best days and your worst days, to process your life in light of God, with him at the center. It's, it's a book all about, actually, having God at the center of your, your longings, your loyalties, your ambitions and hopes. In other words, the this book of Psalms is about worship. We don't mean, when I say worship, just music, and we talk about that a lot in the Psalms, the Bible's concept of worship is something much bigger. It's about what is at the center of our lives, what motivates our decisions. But like many Psalms, uh, Psalm 15, it hones in on this idea of worship, but a bit from a bit of a different angle. You'll notice as we read this, never once do you hear that word, but it nonetheless is exactly about that, about how God be, it is to be the center of everything we do. The question it's asking, though, is not primarily what is... Um, why does God ask for worship, or what kind of worship should we give him? It asks instead, what kind of worshiper is God looking for? In short, we could say that this psalm is about integrity. But obviously, much more needs to be said about this, um, and so we are going to look at this psalm in three parts together about what kind of worshiper God is looking for, what the nature of integrity is. We're going to look at the picture of integrity. You ready? Second, we're going to look at the problem of integrity. And number three, we are going to look at the path toward integrity. You ready? You ready to get to work? I hope you are. 
Um, and if you would look at verse 1 with me in Psalm chapter 1, we're going to look at this verse in just a second. But I want to ask you, before I do, how many of you have worked in a workplace that had a code of conduct? Okay, anybody have a, a workplace that had some sort of motto or operating principle that they would, you know, you'd have to go to a yearly seminar on? How many, if I pressed you, you'd be able to tell me what it is? Or you're pretty sure that you have one, you just have no idea what it is? Okay, so I, I, uh, I think that's many of us, and we see this as more and more popular today, and we're going to talk about why that is. But I, um, I, didn't, I experienced this in workplaces, but the, what comes to mind most is uh, in elementary, middle, and high school, I was a Boy Scout. Now, I realize that may gain me or lose me straight street cred with you today. Probably lose me more, but nonetheless, I loved being a Boy Scout. Anybody, a former Boy Scout here? Oh, look at that. That's great. Okay, so um, I, uh, there was, every week we would, uh, when we'd get together for our uh, meetings, we would uh, hold up our three fingers, like this is the Boy Scout salute, okay? So, and uh, we would recite the Scout Law. Now, those of you who are Boy Scouts, let's see if you can remember it with me, okay? The Scout Law, a Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. I saw some of you got every word there, okay? So it just got embedded in my mind. Um, I, I, now, perhaps the most useful thing about the scout law was also the most frustrating part about it, and that's our leaders could hold that over our heads anytime they wanted us to do something. So say we were dragging our feet and unloading the van. They could say, come on, men, a scout is helpful. Or they wandered into a tent and they say, boys, is this what you call clean? Or spending too much, time, too much money of, on candy in the camp store, a scout is thrifty, or finally, um, we are griping too much about the leader who is holding these rules over our head, a, a scout is cheerful. We, now, what exactly are the scout law or your workplace motto getting at? Why do we form these things? You know, they're, more, they're, they're doing more than describing the ideal scout or the ideal employee. What these are doing, they're aiming to describe a person of character, which I have to tell you, I am really grateful for. And I think that's why we see more of these codes of context or mo- conducts or mottos or governing principles. These work their way into company culture more and more today because um, this side of things like the Me Too movement or the various sexual abuse scandals that have rocked even the church we are longing for people of character, people we can trust, people who use their authority well. We are finding that integrity matters more than where you went to school, what kind of job experience you have, or who you're connected to, or at least it should, right? We are a culture that's longing for integrity, longing for character, longing for the right kind of people who use their authority in right ways. At various points in the Bible, we get lists like we have in Psalm chapter 15. And these lists, I have to tell you, don't so much describe everything a godly person will or won't do, okay? It's not that they are even aiming to describe what is good behavior exclusively. More so, they are painting a picture of how godliness will show up in the everyday, what a love for God will look like in public. They're a picture, not an exclusive list. 
Again, what kind of person, what kind of worshiper is God looking for? It looks like this. And in Psalm 15, these qualities are grouped into four tests or four diagnostic checks, right? So think about when you take your car into the mechanic when they run diagnostics. How can you recognize a person of integrity? First, their character is consistent. Their character is consistent. Looking at verse 2, if you look at, read these words one more time, this kind of person walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Blamelessness, blame, to be blameless, how does that word strike you? You know, I, I think it can strike us as a bit self-righteous, as other points in this psalm are going to. After all, we don't like people very much who pretend to be perfect. Know anyone like that? But the term blameless, at least in the, in the original language, in the Hebrew, it gets at something deeper than performance or external behavior. To be blameless has to do with a person who is single-hearted. It has less to do with the kind of person who appears to obey all the rules than it has to do with somebody who is single-hearted. Now, we may not know what that means, but if I give the opposite per picture, perhaps we will. In the Bible, at various points, it's going to speak out against and condemn something called, be, something called being double-hearted or double-minded, perhaps something that we speak of today. Here, let me give you some examples. You ever known someone who never really says what they mean? Okay, probably don't raise your hand, okay? Don't nudge the person next to you. Who speaks out of both sides of their mouth, attempting to keep everyone happy. Do you know someone who says they are about a lot of things, but their actions say something else? Someone who makes a lot of promises, but when it comes to it, you're not so sure they're not going to leave you out high and dry? Someone who is a different person in public than they are in private. You ever known someone like this? I think we've all worked with someone like this, or maybe worked for someone like this. But let me get a little more personal. Have you ever been this kind of person? Are you someone that some other, others would say they can count on? Honestly. Can people trust you to be honest even when it's uncomfortable or may, might make you look bad? Does your public life match your private life? Are there certain things you're afraid of anyone finding out? And in the meantime, you're pretending like everything's together. To be blameless is to be single-hearted. Notice at the end of verse 2, how does it put it? The blameless person speaks the truth in their heart. What does this mean? It means that there isn't a disagreement between what a person says and who they are. Their character is consistent. Second, the second diagnostic te test is their tongue is tied. Help me finish this phrase if you would. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Did you ever say that as a kid? Hopefully you've not said it this week. Okay, so sticks and stones. Won't. It, this, is this phrase, is it true? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, how many of our deepest wounds, after all, have been dealt by somebody who didn't even have to lift a finger? Are there arguments that still turn over and over in your mind? Are there statements that you still play back from your spouse or your parents? Words that were said years ago but still make your stomach drop today. Maybe it's just me. James, 
Another author in the New Testament says in his letter that the tongue is like a spark that sets a forest on fire. I come from a state where there were forest fires were common in Colorado, and they usually were started by somebody messing around with fireworks. A restless, it also calls the tongue a restless evil. Restless evil, what a powerful phrase, full of deadly poison. A beast which cannot be tamed. In fact, James says that it is uh, entirely possible for the tongue, especially uh, in, our, in, in the mouth of a religious person, to say that it loves God. In fact, to bless God and then to curse the people around them. Let me ask you, how many of the cruelest words that you have ever heard have been by a religious person? Church people sometimes joke that you can spot gossip in three phrases. Um, uh, bless her heart. Or, you gotta love them. Or, I, I've got a prayer request. Gossip can be dressed up in spiritual, as, as something spiritual. It can be dressed up as compassionate concern. It can even be technically true. But the aim is always the same in the mouth of one who speaks it. It, it, it is to tear down. Even as we say things like, I've got something, I just gotta have to get off my chest, or can I just vent with you for a second, or I, I need to be honest with someone. Our intent isn't quite so innocent. Our intent is to tear down. But verse 3 goes even further. It shows us that we can participate in what it calls evil, this kind of evil. How many of us have thought about gossip as not just something to laugh off or something that, to avoid, but it's something that the Bible calls evil. With, we can participate in this kind of of action without ever speaking a word. Notice the phrase, nor takes up a reproach. This means that uh, it, gossip or slander can um, mean spreading an ugly rumor, but it can also refer to hearing an ugly rumor and taking it up again. It speaks against the kind of person that hears uh, slander, hears something ugly, hears something off color, and uh, simply nods their head and laughs uncomfortably and takes comfort that at least I'm not in the crosshairs. Gossip isn't just a matter of seeking to tear someone down with my words. It can be allowing someone to tear down another without a, worth of, without a word of response. Integrity, though, doesn't secretly celebrate when someone looks bad, even if they are my enemy. Integrity doesn't overshare in order that I might look better by comparison. Integrity refuses to tear down even in a spiritual-sounding way. Integrity refuses to receive slander. It does not pick it up. It hands it back. Its integrity says, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is something that you should take, it up with, take up with them. Would you like me to come with you? Integrity doesn't talk about people. It talks to people. Integrity is, their tongue is tied. Third, their loyalties are clear. Look at verse 4 with me, if you would. Especially that phrase, how it begins. What is that phrase? In whose eyes a vile person is despised. How do you hear that? Okay, this phrase, this sounds a little bit self-righteous again, doesn't it? We like people who despise vile people. Okay, this is not exactly something that sounds very pleasant. Some of us have first-hand experience with a kind of holier-than-thou attitude that looks down its nose and finds us to be unworthy. We have no time 
for this kind of attitude, do we? And it turns out the Bible doesn't either. In fact, th- this, this passage doesn't even um, supremely refer to kind of what friends we keep. It's right and good to have friends, in fact, that disagree with our convictions. What this passage is getting at, though, is loyalty. Who and what we defend and stand by and why we do. Can I give you an example uh, that might step on some toes this morning? Promise not to send me an angry email. Um, So as a pastor, I am convinced it is uh, not all that appropriate. In fact, it's unwise for me to tell you who I am voting for. I know some of you want to figure it out so that you can know whether or not to take me seriously. But the more important reason is that I I see Christians linking their political identity with their spiritual identity all the time. And I have to tell you, it is so dangerous. I remember having a conversation a few years ago about a certain political issue, and this friend said to me, Evan, I know we have to think about these things as Christians, but shouldn't we think of these things first as Americans? This has it backwards. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian first. The Bible is clear. Your loyalty is not to a political party or a candidate for office, whether they are red, blue, or purple. Your loyalty is to King Jesus, and your citizenship is to his kingdom, a kingdom that does not bear a flag. Patriotism can be a healthy thing, I am convinced biblically. After all, I am expected by God to love my neighbor, and it makes sense to love the neighbor in closest proximity to me. To pray for and to seek the, the good of America is because I love my neighbor. But a kind of America first mentality has seduced many Christians into deep compromise, a kind of compromise the rest of the world is not blind to, and they see it in our basic loyalties. Just because a politician or political party may be on the side of Christians on certain issues does not mean this person is God's man or God's woman. In fact, no matter the party, a Christian will always find themselves affirming certain things about that party while critiquing and opposing others. I appreciate how pastor and church planter Tim Keller puts it, How do Christians fit into a two-party system? They don't. For example, Keller points out, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians should be committed to things like racial justice and the poor, but also to the understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing family. One of these views seems liberal, and the other seems oppressively conservative. Christians will end up affirming and offending both parties at some level. Does this mean that Christians shouldn't vote? Of course not. Christians, we have, we have if you are a Christian and an American, we have a privilege of participating in our system of government, governance. It's a matter of stewardship. Of course we should vote. But critiquing the policies or even the character of our highest officials should not be all that strange for Christians because we have a loyalty to God and to those who fear him. Daniel called out Nebuchadnezzar. John the Baptist condemned Herod. The early church called out Caesar. God will judge Babylon. Again, this doesn't give us an excuse to be self-righteous or holier than thou. 
But anytime we equate our loyalty to God with a loyalty to something else, whether it be an organization, a political party, or a certain parenting method, we are setting ourselves up for blind compromise of excusing things that Christians have no business excusing, convinced that we are on God's side when we may not be at all, while demonizing those we may have something to learn from. What marks a person of integrity is their loyalties are clear. D, their dealings are honorable. Look at the end of verse five, 4 and into 5 with me. It speaks about uh, vows, it speaks about interest, it speaks about bribes. This gets really specific, folks, and uh, in ways that we're not, we feel like they're probably a bit removed from our day-to-day context. Let me see if I can summarize each, though I can't do a deep dive. Uh, Verse 4 at the very end, uh, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This refers to the common ancient practice of swearing a vow or an oath. We don't do that very much. Um, these days you might hear somebody who says, I swear on my mother's grave or something like that, right? So we, this ma- method of swearing was actually very commonplace to stand behind your word, um, to, uh, to provide something or to avoid something. It's less like a pinky swear and more like an unbreakable vow. Let's put it in modern terms, though. Um, a person of integrity. A person of integrity isn't fickle and flaky. A person of integrity stands by what they have said even when difficulty strikes, when it gets confusing, or they get more than they bargained for. A person of integrity comes through on what they say they will even when it hurts, even when it costs. And can we be honest with one another just for a second? Sometimes integrity costs. Look next to verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest. Does this mean that my student loans or my mortgage is sinning against me because it's charging interest? I mean, just try to use that line of log- logic when collection calls. I mean, this, this, no, I don't think that every form of interest or on a loan is, uh, is uh, being ruled out by these verses. Instead, it's referring to something more specific. In the ancient Near East, to the society that this was written in, if you fell into debt, one of the ways you could resolve that debt, your, the last straw was to be sold as a slave. And so the poor in desperation would often take a loan from somebody who could offer it to avoid slavery, but that loan would often be at 50% interest, 50% interest. The clearest example of this today is perhaps payday loan agencies. In fact, if you go to um, one, of the, one of the markers, you can tell um, a poor, uh, poorer neighborhood is um, how many payday loan agencies are within close proximity. These, uh, again, I don't ha- hesitate to say that this is, this is the kind of profiteering that is, that is spoken of in this passage. This verse condemns a kind of prof- this kind of profiteering from taking place among God's people. It pro- God's word protected the poor from being exploited and abused in their moment of need, from being extorted when they were out of options. Again, to put this in modern terms, a person of integrity refuses to take advantage of someone else's disadvantage. They refuse to take advantage of someone else's disadvantage. A person of integrity refuses to see the opportunity in someone else's suffering. An opportunity maybe to get ahead financially, maybe to make relationship connections, maybe to step up the corporate ladder. A person of integrity 
refuses to take advantage of someone else's disadvantage. Verse 5 then speaks of bribery next. How many of you have bribed a judge recently? If you have, we should talk, okay? So this isn't something we normally do. Swaying the results, though, in this time would have been more commonplace. Swaying the results of a trier, tri- I'm sorry, trial and uh, could ha- take place by those who could afford the price. A person of integrity, though, refuses to subtly sway circumstances to their own advantage, even if it means saving face. They refuse to give special treatment to those who could stand to benefit them, even if no one would notice. A person of integrity wants the truth to be known, even if it is not convenient. Putting these things together, the person of integrity is not fickle, underhanded, or greedy in their dealings with others. They aren't simply looking out for number one. The person of integrity is honorable, even when it costs them. This leads us to our second part, the problem with integrity. Okay, years ago, I worked at a church in Denver, where we're from, and I, um, we were passing through town uh, recently, and um, I decided I was going to stop by the office where I worked and say hi to the church staff. And so assuming I could enter in the back of the building where I always had before, um, after all, I still had my old key card in my wallet. And so I pulled around back, walked up those rear steps, and uh, flashed my wallet over the sensor. What do you think it did? It blinked red at me, okay? So I took the card out, Swiped it again, it blinked red. At this point, this, uh, it's, uh, those back entrances by a playground where there's a daycare that was taking all these kids, I was starting to receive some eyes, <laughs> nonetheless from those uh, workers. Um, I uh, began to shake that door handle furiously, hoping somebody had left the door open, which they hadn't, and nobody either heard my knocking. And so before someone could call the cops, I walked around the front of the building and sheepishly pushed that front button and said, Hi, this is Evan Skelton. I used to work here, believe it or not. Could somebody let me in? Totally embarrassed at this point. And the thing is, some of us are confident God is going to let us in. You may even have some of the things on this list mastered. You might call yourself a person of integrity um, e- through comparison. As I'm uh, walking through these diagnostic checks, you're saying, yeah, I'm pretty nearly there. You're thinking of others who need to hear this. Again, you might be elbowing or talking with somebody, planning out the conversation in the parking lot today. Did you hear what the pastor said about integrity? The the problem is, is we aren't often running these diagnostic checks on ourselves. What the psalm assumes is that the only ones who enter his tent, who can dwell on his holy hill, those who can be in God's presence, aren't those who fulfill some of this, who get most of the way there, but those who fulfill all of this. Much as it might surprise us, though, that for everyone listening to this, we have two problems with our integrity. Number one, integrity is a matter of the heart. I want to look at Luke chapter 6 in the New Testament, some teachings of Jesus. You can just look at the screen or turn there if you want with me. There's two pictures that we're going to look at where Jesus talks about the nature of integrity, about what it looks like to obey God's law, starting in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. 
Jesus is giving us more than a gardening lesson here, right? Character isn't just a matter of willpower, of calculated control, of listing out the rules and, and checking them off your list. It's more than resilient determination or choosing my company carefully. It's more like fruit. How many of you um, have ever walked out to an apple tree and yelled at it to produce you apples? Have you ever walked out to that same apple tree and yelled at it to produce oranges? No, the only, only the right kind of tree can produce the right kind of fruit, and the right kind of heart produces the right kind of fruit. Only the right kind of heart produces integrity. Some of us look at a list like this in Psalm 15. We throw up our hands. We are, if only people knew how many rules we had broken, how little I feel like I belong here. If there was ever a failure, we're sure it's me. Still, I fear many more of us, even those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians, assume that we are square with God because we have mastered some of this. We're consistent. We're honest. We're loyal. We follow through. We don't take advantage of others, so far as we can see at least. Some of us think that being a Christian is largely a matter of obeying enough of the rules to get on the inside track with God, of outweighing my bad with the good, or at least of being good enough when compared to her. We're going to look at this more in a second, but Psalm 15, again, isn't just simply a list of rules. If it was, it would give us many more. It isn't so much a description even of good behavior. It is a description of a certain kind of heart and what, kind, what that kind of heart looks like in public. The point isn't the behavior. The point is the heart that produces it, the heart that is welcomed into God's presence. When this heart is sour, so is the fruit. The fruit may appear shiny. It may even taste good, but it turns the stomach. You may, again, think that you are on good side because you've mastered some of this, but it may turn out that your heart and your fruit are sour. This isn't the only problem with integrity. Second, is that we are easily shaken. This gets to another parable of Jesus and another one that uh, people are familiar with. Verse 46, this illustration of integrity. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Listen to this. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Experience will show us that a life can appear sound appear solid at one moment and in shambles the next. Maybe you've found your, your life like that at some point, looking back, how, how did this even happen? The true integrity of a house, and it doesn't take an architect to understand this, has less to do with what it looks like above the ground than what it looks like underneath the ground, upon what that foundation rests the problem is that people 
can learn to behave for a variety of different reasons, can't they? After all, I have to tell you, some of the kindest and most honest people I know are not Christians. Being a Christian isn't simply a matter of obeying a certain kind of morality. Okay, so, but then I have to tell you that many religious people I know uh, who pat themselves on the back for how they look on the outside still look ugly and hard on the inside. We tend to focus on what's above ground, but God sees what our life rests upon, and experience itself shows that when life is built upon the wrong thing, and that life meets with conflict, with loss, or with compromise, it takes very little for that integrity to crumble. Have you ever been surprised at how easily you broke your own rules? This is what Jesus was referring to when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. What does this mean? It means that they appeared righteous and put together on the outside, but they were decaying within. That kind of life is unstable. It is unstable in its sense of trust. It is unstable in its sense of self. It is unstable in its experience of integrity, and this life is doomed to fall. As Jesus puts it, the ruin of that house will be great. So what can finally then produce a stable life, which I think is what we want? A life that David says shall never be moved. This is the path toward integrity, number three. Verse one, we actually have to back up to the beginning of our psalm to see this. These initial questions, I want you to hear them. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Okay, we're going to come back to these. But our family often finds ourselves on long road trips. Do you ever take long road trips as a family when you were a kid? We take them uh, multiple times because now we've moved between our families, and we're going to be taking another one in a few weeks to go visit um, Grace's family and introduce the new baby. And we, uh, we live six hours from some family, and we live 12 from the other, technically, like if you're Google Mapsing the thing, but if you're a parent, you know that's you got to double that, okay? So we, uh, that doesn't take into account all the bathroom stops, all the breastfeeding stops, all the we need to let the kids run around or I'm going to leave one of them behind stops. This is, it's the last hour or two that are the hardest, am I right? Doesn't matter how long you're driving, that last hour or two, two you, you're gripping that steering wheel wondering, when will it all stop? We need to get there. When will we get there? Are we there yet? Even as you're being asked that 17 times from the back seats, we want to get there already. Let's look at these verses. When, when uh, the psalmist, when, when uh, David is asking these questions, what kind of person even asks these questions? It's a person who wants to sojourn in God's tent, who wants to dwell on God's hill. The image is of, uh, yes, of the tabernacle that I described before, but there's even this image of sojourner, of searching, is, is an image of a, a traveler who longs to be home. Behind these questions is somebody who wants to arrive in God's presence as if to arrive at home. The whole Bible assumes that this kind of, that behavior, that our behavior, what we do and what we don't do, how we speak, how we make decisions, it's actually a reflection of what we desire. There is always a reason we say what we say or do what we do. And often, unfortunately, religion tries to control the behavior 
it, re it kind of just goes to moralism. Like if we can just tell people to be honest enough and to stop dishonesty, then they'll finally switch it. The problem is, is that's not how the heart works. Our conscious and unconscious decisions are the downstream effects of desire. Which means that integrity isn't supremely a matter of duty and decision, although you're going to have to make certain kinds of decisions and obey God's word. It doesn't say that all goes, gets tossed out, but the only way that you can do so is if the desires are rightly ordered. It's a matter of desire. And what does David desire? God himself. Again, if we're honest, even those of us who may be experts at following the rules, we may not desire what we think. There's a great quote I love from um, James K.A. Smith in a book called You Are What You Love, I think. Regardless, it has a heart on the cover. It doesn't matter. This uh, book um, says, um, we are what, sorry, you are what you love. You are what you love. Okay, so we are a product of our desires. You are what you love, but you may not love what you think but you may not love what you think. I have met too many, again, religious people, people who have considered themselves to be Christians for a long time, who think they love God. But the reason for obeying the rules is not because of that love at all. Often the very reason we obey the rules is because it puts us in more control of our life. Because it allows me then to keep God at arm's length. I've done what he asked me after all. It makes me look better in comparison to others. Maybe because it works out to my advantage. Yes, it should make sense that God's rules tend to result in good things. Some of us obey the rules, though, not because we desire God, but because we want, we want to remain Lord and Savior over our lives. Because if we're honest, what we desire is not God, but ourselves. To be our own master. And we have found the rules to be a convenient path to it. Only God sees straight to the heart. He knows that this kind of life is easily shaken. What motivates the person of integrity is something different than self-interest and self-dependence. And so the person of integrity is uniquely able to embrace inconveniences with grit, to endure losses with re resilience, to refuse compromise with joy, even when it stings. Why? Because that person of integrity has a desire which allows them to then deny their other desires, a desire for God himself, full stop. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says the Christian life is about taking up our cross and following him. But what does he say immediately after that? For he who would save his life would lose it. But the one who would lose his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says that self-denial is on the path to joy. The reason we can deny other desires, even if it feels a lot like death, even if it feels like we're picking up on our own cross, is because greater joy is in store. And that joy is found in God's presence because he has become our supreme joy, supreme desire, the thing we want most in life, the place we know we are safe, the one we know who protects us, the one we know who has done all things so that we might be in love and grow in that love forever. That is a mark of a Christian, is that God becomes their supreme desire. The thing is, we are powerless. I use that word intentionally, powerless to change our desires on our own. This is why we can only resort to making mottos in the workplace or codes of conduct or the scout law. 
We can only legislate things, try and keep people accountable, try and say, here's hope, and you end up there. It turns out the only thing that can awaken a different desire, a stronger desire within us, the only thing that can exchange our stone-cold hearts for hearts of flesh, as the Bible puts it, and it puts it that strongly, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus spoke of a Christian as being born again is because that's what it's like. The reason that Paul speaks of a Christian as being a new creation is because that is what it's like. It's as if you are being recreated. Something new exists there that did not exist before. You see, the gospel doesn't just offer a means for us to clean up our lives. It's not just the promise that uh, uh, bad people can become good. It doesn't just yell at us and to try harder and to do better. The gospel is the news of a new heart, not cleaning up of an old one. New desires, not turning up the heat on old ones. New life pumping through my veins because all I knew was death. The grace of Christ implants something that was not there before, and every time it is supernatural. It is as miraculous as when God first spoke creation into existence or rose Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus, the only one who lived a life of perfect integrity, because he died a death for compromisers, because he rose to life for those who lacked integrity, only because of Christ can I ever hope to walk as he has walked. Because the grace of Christ implants a new heart gives second birth, welcomes someone new, both, uh, it, it, it just creates something new in both the rebel and the rule follower sinner. Christians have been welcomed to dwell in the tent of God. They've been welcomed into his very presence, and it is that very presence that begins to remake us at a level much deeper than our own behavior. Because the gospel is true, friends, in, uh, in, in Psalm 15, we find more than just a standard to pursue. We find a promise of what we are becoming. If you are not a Christian, I, I just have to appeal to you that, again, I hope this begins to uh, challenge some of your assumptions about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not just to have a more put-together life or to turn up the heat on your own performance and obedience and your willpower. What happens in the life of a Christian is we, is Christians, whether they're rule-following or rebels, is they have to receive something new. And it starts by saying that they need something new. They are unable to perform. They're unable. They, to, they, they don't want to pretend as if everything is put together any longer. And they confess that Christ, what he has to give them is major heart surgery. He has to put life in their veins. And unless there's supernatural intervention through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no hope to be had. That is what it means to be a Christian. If you are not one, is this picture of integrity the least bit attractive to you? There's no experiencing a change of behaviors without a change of beliefs. There is no change of duties without a change of desires. Confess your hope in him. If you are a Christian, I have to encourage you to do whatever it takes to stoke this desire. That means you must sometimes confess your lack of it, that you want God to be your joy, that you want him to be your ruling desire, and he's not. 
Confess not only that lack of desire, but the, the repercussions it has had on others, the repercussions it has had on your integrity. Plead for it to be reawakened. Plead that you might uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then walk in that kind of life as you wait for God to provide. Is the fruit of your life the fruit of integrity? What areas, I'm not going to ask are there areas because there always are, what areas do the, does the gospel still need to transform you? A life lived in obedience to this news, friends, is a secure one. It's certainly not free from suffering. In fact, it might make the suffering more, uh, yeah, more intense, more common, but it's secure nonetheless because you are with him. And he will neither abandon you or forsake you. The grace of Christ welcomes us into the presence of God, despite our lack of these things, so that we might become these things. And so we want to rest in that grace even as we pray right now. Lord, we pray as those who have uh, every diagnostic check have not been, uh, have not been sufficient, as J.I. Packer has put it, um, the news of our sin, the total depravity is not as that we are as bad as we could be, but we are never as good as we should be. And so would the Christians here experience that kind of holy discontent? They would want more of Christ. They would want that desire to transform more of their life, and they would plead with you for it, looking for that same miraculous power that once woke them up from the dead. And Lord, I pray for those who are not Christians today that that, entire, that, that desire for integrity wouldn't uh, be turned down, it'd be turned up. So much so that the kind of person they wish they were and want to be, they would come to you to produce. They would give up trying to make themselves different. And they would look to the new birth that is found in Christ to, play, to implant something new within them. And that this church would be a place where they can walk in step with that good news as beggars pointing others, beggars to the bread, as all once dead people, for those who are Christians, awakened into life, we confess our allegiance to Jesus Christ, wanting to dwell in his presence forever, knowing that one day we will. It's for his sake that we pray. Amen.